0: Welcome to a special edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast where we are going to be taking a closer look at the Supreme Court as it is constituted under the current president, Lord Reid. In recent weeks there has been a bit of debate on this subject after Reid appeared before the House of Lords Constitution Committee and a couple of recent articles have attempted to apply some analysis to the Reed Court. Firstly, Professor Connor Gearty, the Professor of Human Rights Law at the London School of Economics, wrote an article called In the Shallow End for the London Review of Books. Then, in response to this, Lewis Graham, a law fellow at Wadham College, published The Read Court by Numbers for the UK Constitutional Law Association's blog. I'm not putting myself in such high company, but I think that when you have done a weekly podcast on the Supreme Court for the past six years or whatever it is now, it entitles you to at least offer up your own opinion. The first thing I have to say is a little bit meta, but I do think it is worth considering just why we are asking this question in the first place. We just haven't seen the same sort of scrutiny before when it comes to the previous presidents. Lord Phillips was president for the first three years of the Supreme Court and was instrumental in the transition from the House of Lords. Lord Newberger then took over for five years and ran with the ball, giving the court its own distinct personality. I then think that although she was president for only just over a couple of years, people do think that of there being a Hail Court because of the political instability at the time with respect to Brexit. And of course, the Miller II judgment that was a part of this. Perhaps we think of there being a Reed Court because it is so different from this. The Miller II judgment showed that the Supreme Court was truly an independent branch of government and could stand up to the executive branch when needed. The impression is that Lord Reed has regressed on this front and that the court has become more institutionalized under his stewardship. But is that a fair assessment? When answering a question like that I think it is important to distinguish between two different types of methodology quantitative and qualitative whereas a quantitative approach looks at numbers and statistics to give us some insight qualitative research looks at how individual cases are decided and develops conclusions in that way both of these methodologies have advantages and disadvantages Using statistics we can get an overarching understanding that perhaps misses out on some of the nuances, while qualitative research can get into the details but perhaps misses the wood for the trees. To be more specific to this subject, Gearty's article in the London Review of Books goes into wonderful detail about a number of cases, but it could be said that the judgments and even the quotes that he uses are hand-picked to suit a conclusion that is critical of Lord Reed. Meanwhile, Graham's post seems to show the trends of the Reed Court with more accuracy, but suffers from what is still a relatively small sample size, and without the case details, doesn't really tell us much about the mindset of Reed or his counterparts. Despite these issues, I think it is possible to look at both pieces of work together and get them to tell us something about the direction of the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Let's start with Graham, as he puts three theories about the Reed court to a statistical test. That it tends to reject human rights claims, that it sides with public authorities, and that it upholds the decisions of the lower courts. From the research, it certainly does appear that Reed's iteration of the Supreme Court is much more dismissive of human rights claims. In the past, the success rate in these sorts of claims has hung at around 41%, but in 2021, that number dropped as low as 13%. A similar point can be made in relation to the judgments that favour public bodies. In the past, this has been around 56%, but under Lord Reed, these authorities have enjoyed an unprecedented 74% success rate, and that figure is even higher if the analysis is confined to just central government bodies. On the final point, it is interesting to note that there seems to be little evidence to confirm the theory that the Reed court does not often allow appeals. Instead, the rate has stayed at around the 50% mark, which is what you would expect for a court that is supposed to decide each case on its merits, rather than on the basis of what a lower court has concluded. In theory, this seems to work against the ideas from Gearty that, quote, Reed has made himself the master of an approach to judicial review, so like touch as to be almost no touch at all however i think that this gets to the crux of the difference between the two pieces it is true that there is nothing unusual in terms of the number of appeals that are allowed but that figure doesn't tell us much about the mindset that lord reed and his colleagues are adopting in the judgments themselves that quote i just cited was in the context of the famous shamima begum case that i covered on the podcast in that case, the Reed Court famously disagreed with the Court of Appeal, but in so doing, it affirmed the position of the Home Secretary and made light of the lower court's attempts to introduce fairness into proceedings. As Gearty points out, it would essentially take a Home Secretary to take leave of their senses before the Reed Court stepped in and did something about it. In the context of our discussion, this shows how different trends can combine together in specific cases. And slightly obscure some of the statistical results. Geertie's qualitative analysis argues that the Reed Court has four targets in its sights. Firstly, his decisions attack those public interest groups who are not directly affected by government policy, but nevertheless become involved in cases, most often by intervening. In the SC and CB case about the two child limit in the context of child benefits, Lord Reed famously noted that discrimination cases, quote, are usually brought by campaigning organisations which lobbied unsuccessfully against the measure when it was being considered in Parliament, and then act as solicitors for persons affected by the legislation, or otherwise support legal challenges brought in their names as a means of continuing their campaign. End quote. Secondly, the recourt has undermined the use of parliamentary materials as part of litigation. In that same case, it was declared that, quote, this has been taken to extreme lengths in some recent cases, end quote. And the third target, according to Geertie, is the role that international law plays in the context of judicial decisions. Once again, in SC and CB, it is strongly argued that there is no room, quote, for any departure from the rule that our domestic courts cannot determine whether this country has violated its obligations under unincorporated international treaties. End quote. Finally, the fourth failure of the Reed Court is an unwillingness to engage with questions of social and economic policy. This is visible in SC and CB, as well as the Begum case, amongst many others. It links in with the problem that Reid demands policy decisions to be manifestly without reasonable foundation, and this makes life desperately hard for claimants, even when they are suffering from a great injustice. All of these points made by Gearty are true to some extent or another, but you can see that there is a problem with extrapolating so much from one case, even though there are a small selection of others mentioned throughout the article one of the other things to think about is that this qualitative approach is also going to be much more judgmental than a piece that is more reliant on statistics to tell a story. We have mentioned that Gierty is critical of the relationship that the Reed Court has with international law, but this dualist approach has been the constitutional approach taken by the UK for centuries. It is true that maybe the court could be more open to the idea that unincorporated treaties are a valuable resource or that the essence of their text is often reflected somewhere in domestic legislation, but it's difficult to be overly critical of Lord Reed's Supreme Court on this point. In a similar fashion, how open should the court be to economic and social issues? It would be nice if the court regularly followed principles of natural justice, but that is just not how things work. The Supreme Court is there to interpret legislation, and questions of policy are up to the politicians'. If there is a greater amount of injustice being permitted recently, is that not really more a fault of the government rather than the judiciary? Overall, I think we can take aspects of both pieces and come to a conclusion that is also supported by what you have heard on this podcast over the past few years. The re Court is certainly much more passive, conservative and respectful of government decision making than any other iteration of the Supreme Court. When I previously wrote in my newsletter about some of the proposals for judicial review reform, I suggested that perhaps some of the more radical changes were being tempered, because some of the recent decisions by the re-court showed that their judgments were becoming more demure. I am now much more sceptical of that conclusion, and do not think there was a link whatsoever. The Supreme Court has become much less strident of its own accord, and even if there were less concerns about change of constitutional importance, that will upset the balance of powers. It is hard to believe that Lord Reed or his colleagues would suddenly become more imaginative. Whether this is a good thing or not depends on your own view of the court. I am by no means a radical, but it would certainly be nice to see the Supreme Court be more expansive, or at least slightly more sympathetic towards those with legitimate human rights claims, or those who have endured some arbitrary injustice served upon them by the government. There are ways to genuinely interpret the law as it is written, and be mindful of the plight of parties with less economic or social power. Whatever your take might be, it is likely that Lord Reed will continue to be the President of the Supreme Court for the next five, or maybe even ten, years. As the government continues to take an axe to the rule of law, it will be interesting to see if Lord Reed will ever awake from his judicial slumber. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Reminder from me before you go that if you would like to help out the podcast in some way, there are a number of ways that you can do that. The first one would be to obviously leave a rating and a review of the podcast, whether that's on Spotify or on iTunes. I don't really mind wherever you listen to the podcast, there's normally a rating system there and all of those ratings help to make the podcast more visible for other law students or people who are interested in the law. So if you do get time, that is always very much appreciated. The other thing to mention is that you can support the podcast by also subscribing to the newsletter. Subscribers got um, not only an early preview of this podcast episode, but this week we were also talking about the um, Partygate scandal and the consequences for Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, and also the resignation of David Wolfson. If all of that is something you're interested in, then check out the link in the podcast description. Otherwise, I'll be back with another regular episode next week. But for now, bye! (laughs)